Welcome to SKO Unmuted, a podcast for the attorneys of Stalkeen and Ogden to join other experts, trailblazers, and prominent voices in conversation about emerging economic and legal issues for business and civic leaders. I'm your host, Adam Back. The information provided in this podcast does not constitute and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information and content are for general informational purposes only. The material presented may not reflect the most up-to-date legal or other information. Persons needing legal advice should contact an attorney to obtain advice with respect to their particular legal matter. Downloading or listening to this presentation does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the law firm of Stalking and Ogden PLLC, any of SKO's attorneys, and any of the presenters in this podcast. When Daniel Boone led the first colonial expeditions into what we now call Kentucky, the settlers brought with them distilling expertise from their home countries and neighboring areas like Virginia. And they realized that the water and the climate here made for a really great whiskey. Now the distilling industry produces $9 billion in economic output for the state. According to the Kentucky Distillers Association, the industry supports more than 22,000 jobs in manufacturing, agriculture, and tourism. We've all heard about the bourbon boom. But what many may not realize is that this massive growth in popularity and global demand is uncharted territory for the bourbon industry. As the industry continues to grow, it means that the long-standing laws that regulate distilling in the Commonwealth are in need of updates. Those have been rolling out steadily over the years to help distillers grow with the evolving industry and ensure that Kentucky keeps its crown as the bourbon epicenter of the world. September is Kentucky Bourbon Heritage Month. And in celebration, we're bringing you two episodes of SKO Unmuted, exploring Kentucky's native spirit, how it got here, why it's so important, and where the industry goes from here. In this episode of SKO Unmuted, I talk with Cordell Lawrence, Chief Operating Officer of Kentucky Peerless Distilling Company, and SKO Attorney Nick Nicholson. Cordell is an innovator with over 15 years of experience in brand marketing with iconic brands such as Jack Daniels, Southern Comfort, Louisville Slugger, Maker's Mark, and Knob Creek. He has extensive experience and expertise in digital marketing on the national and global scale and currently serves on the board of the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. Nick Nicholson is a member in SKO's Lexington office where he focuses on real estate development. Nick helps his clients through every stage of a real estate transaction in the entitlement phase of property ownership. He has experience in many aspects of the bourbon industry from assisting distillers or aging operations as they open new locations, helping their products find their way into the hands of consumers, and facilitating new tourism ventures that help promote the golden age of bourbon. Cordell Nick, thank you for joining me today to talk about this very important industry. I can't think of a better place to start off than to just ask, what is the state of the bourbon industry today? What are the challenges and the opportunities that you see? Well, we often describe it as the golden age, and I wouldn't disagree. I think we're in a perfect time for optimal growth. I think there are still headwinds ahead. Uh, Fortunately, there's been a number of advantageous laws that have been passed by the Kentucky legislature and approved by the current governor, as well as the prior governor, to make that happen, enable that growth, which we're very grateful for. But that being said, we'll touch upon this shortly. 
terms of the ecosystem, if you will, of startup distilleries, uh, we need to make sure that that is a healthy ecosystem and we're not just focused on necessarily the heritage brands that have you know the billion dollar plus type investments. Uh, other states are actively recruiting and trying to throw incentives at startup distilleries to locate in their state versus Kentucky. If we want to own that uh, in terms of startups, we need to do certain things, which we'll touch on shortly, to capture that. From my perspective, I'm certainly getting more phone calls from folks that are wanting to get in this game. Um, it is it is kind of amazing how much demand is coming from the outside world, just as you were kind of indicating, not just the heritage brands. Folks saying, I see what is happening. I think it's really special. I want in on this. We're certainly seeing the kind of other side of that as well with regards to, okay, where can we uh, kind of expand our industry? What kind of territory should we be looking at? How do we have the demand for these warehousing? We you know, love seeing all these billboards that there are more bourbon barrels currently in Kentucky than there are horses and there are people. Wonderful to see, but where do we put them all? That always is the question when it comes to how do we keep this boom really going. And I'll ask both of you, how did we get to this golden age? What is it? What what is the confluence of events or circumstances that led to this incredible growth in the bourbon industry? That's a really great question, and it's one that we think about often at Peerless. So I'm with Kentucky Peerless, which is the resurrection of a pre-prohibition distillery founded in 1889 that was operational until prohibition. This kind of tells the beginning of that story, if you will. So if you think about the prohibition time, we were one of the few that was available as medicinal whiskey. Um, still owned and operated by the original founder of our company, Henry Craver, whose great-grandson, my boss, the CEO, Corky Taylor, resurrected in 2015. Unfortunately, at the end of Prohibition, the headwinds were still there. The opportunities to grow the industry were not significant because the profit margins had basically been pulled out during the Prohibition era by other, uh, what I'll say, unscrupulous people um, that were involved in the trade and illegal trade of the product at the time. It wasn't until the 1950s, 60s, and really the early 70s um, at the latter end there that bourbon became synonymous with, uh, at that point, masculinity. A lot of men saw it as kind of a regular occasion for them to get together, a social occasion. Also, the cocktail culture at the time for the at-home entertainment that happened uh, was significant. Unfortunately, the beginning and middle of the 70s, you see the kind of introduction of light spirits, including uh, flavored Canadian whiskey, gin, vodka, other spirits that are seen as more palatable or easy drinking, kind of take market share, stomach share, if you will. And then essentially, we're not heard from again until, call it the late 90s, early 2000s. And even at that point, people thought, oh gosh, the boom had been happening for a number of years. Really, bourbon had fallen off from, call it 1972-73, till about 99 or 2000, before you saw significant investments. You see what Maker's Mark was doing out in Loretta, Kentucky. You saw what uh, Brown Foreman did in terms of the original LeBro and Graham, reintroducing that as Woodford Reserve, which has been a phenomenal runaway success. And they really set the mark in terms of the industry kind of following that super premium what we call premiumization model, which then allowed consumers to have kind of a plethora of choices outside of your standard kind of Jim Beam white label, for example. You even saw a company like Beam, uh, Global at the time, introducing brands like Knob Creek, Basil Hayden, Booker's, Baker's, et cetera, to really premiumize their portfolio, which consumers were asking for those type of products. And then you've seen the further acceleration, and it's funny to call this out, but it's true. Many CEOs in the industry have mentioned this being a growth factor 
but the Mad Men effect. That TV show had a significant pop culture effect. And it's funny because if you think about it, what I just spoke about, it's included in that, right? So the 50s, 60s, and 70s is that Mad Men era. So all of a sudden, the positive things out of that, including the cocktail culture, were kind of cool again. And then bourbon started to experience its kind of it moment in pop culture uh, and other avenues. So that that kind of accelerated further. And then you think about COVID in most recent years, COVID actually further increased that premium trend. Because what happened was all of a sudden people had that home occasion. They're not spending money you would spend by the drink in an account. Very expensive, right? You can actually buy that bottle in the off-premise. All of a sudden you can afford a higher-end product. And all of a sudden you can bring over friends and family to enjoy it with you. You have more time at the store, you have more time kind of exploring different brands, and all of a sudden you're introducing yourself to brands you never would discover otherwise. So it actually had a multiplying effect uh, during COVID. So I, I believe the stat that I saw, the luxury brand index over the last five years, so basically $75 plus American whiskey, including whiskey outside Kentucky, was about 46% growth year-over-year average from 17 to 21, which is pretty phenomenal. A lot of that happened during COVID, but kind of the the deck was stacked, if you will, leading into COVID as well to make it happen. That's really funny you bring that up. And I promise this isn't staged. During COVID, I had a uh, group of friends that truly would record videos trying to outdo one another, creating essentially a cocktail, trying to explain how to make something. And they became three-minute, four-minute elaborate videos and like That's almost great. movies. Uh, and it was entirely designed around the cocktail experience because we're in different states and sitting at home trying to uh, grab a minute of enjoyment. So how did the kind of the, I guess, the startup of Peerless play into that timeline you were just talking about? Sure. So the building here in downtown Louisville along Whiskey Row on 10th and Main Street was acquired in 2013, two years under construction. First barrel filled March 4th of 2015. Our small batch rye whiskey was introduced in May of 17 and then small batch bourbon in June of 19. We've been on a fortunate run. So we were named the best craft distillery in the world uh, by Whiskey Magazine. It was the first time a Kentucky distillery has ever won that award, ironic enough. And that was in 2019. Also named the best rye whiskey by Whiskey Advocate in 2017. Best Kentucky bourbon by American Whiskey Magazine in 2020. And then in 2021 with our Double Oak bourbon, the eighth best whiskey in the world against all whiskey categories, Irish, Japanese, Scotch, etc., by Whiskey Advocate magazine. So that is not with a global you know, conglomerate behind us. That is an independent, family-owned and operated company that I'm fortunate to be part of. And we're on a, uh, a tear, if you will. So, Cordell, what were some of the challenges in that 2015 or so time period when Peerless came back into existence that caused some issues or caused some problems? And, and how is that environment different today? Fantastic question. We were a dormant brand. That's what I call us. You know, nobody had heard heard from us since Prohibition. So anybody alive today essentially was not of legal drinking age when we would have been available for consumption and enjoyment. Unfortunately, we basically had to start from scratch. You know, we had to go back and look at, okay, what were the things that the company did very well back then from what we have in terms of paper records? And then what can we do in terms of modern touches, in terms of innovation of producing the product? So for example, we decided to not necessarily replicate the original mash bill, we decided to actually do something slightly different in terms of that. We also decided to do uh, sweet mash instead of sour mash. With sweet mash, it's fresh grain, fresh water, fresh yeast. It produces a much more grain forward and grain complex product. This was revolutionary. There was only one other distillery, Wilderness Trail in Danville, Kentucky, uh, Shane and Pat, good friends of ours who were doing this at the time. Very labor intensive, 
very challenging from a technical standpoint, from a production standpoint, to uh, keep these sanitary conditions to enable that process to happen. All those things combined enabled us to win the awards that I recently discussed, because we really took the path of most resistance, not least resistance, if you will. We made it as hard on ourselves as possible. We felt like if we did that, combined with actually producing our own product and not buying things on contract and not criticizing that business model, but for us, it really meant something to say, every drop we've ever made is actually produced at Peerless for our products. You know, we haven't gone out in the open market and purchased barrels and say, oh, by the way, we did this one process with it and all of a sudden it became peerless. No, we wanted to have our philosophies in play with the product from beginning to end to produce the best rye whiskey and bourbon possible. Is there anything you would tell 2015 Cordell? Uh, yes. I, I think in terms of thinking about distribution, you know, we really wanted to go wide early on. What I mean by wide is wide geographic footprint. And I think we became overly fixated on that, where we would have would have been more successful early on, call it 15, 16, leading into 17, if we really would have been narrow in our focus in terms of geographic footprint. And what I mean by that is you can basically fish where the fish are, right? Go to the places where you know there's affluence, there's consumers that have a predisposition to your category of spirit, and you're going to win. Uh, you don't need to spend a lot of time, and there's many great states in this country, on states that are less significant early on. You can kind of get there once you're more fully developed. You know, you mentioned the competition for new entrants into the field, and that often takes the form of um, tax relief or tax incentives. What are states outside of Kentucky doing in addition to those types of activities to try to draw in new business? Well, the fortunate and unfortunate thing, depending on which state you're located in, right? So states outside of Kentucky, Kentucky uh, is known as the bourbon capital of the world, of course, but Kentucky, unfortunately, has a barrel tax. It's the only state or country or location, if you will, that taxes um, aging spirits in the entire world, at least as far as we know. Um, with that, these other states are basically able to say, you can come here and have no issues with barrel taxes you're paying, with construction of new rickhouse space, and kind of the other uh, permitting and regulation aspects that come around that, that Nick can, of course, touch on. There's a lot of advantages there in terms of construction costs as well. There's so many things at play right now in the industry. Now, on the flip side, House Bill 500, all of a sudden, we can attract if it's played the right way, new startup distilleries, because all of a sudden, if you have a presence in Kentucky, guess what? You can have people select single barrels from you directly, bypassing a three-tier system, which increases the profit margin on that product you're selling. You can have satellite tasting rooms. Say you have a rural distillery, say outside of Versailles or Frankfurt. All of a sudden, you can have a tasting room in Lexington or Louisville. They can capture kind of the consumers that are doing the bourbon trail from the metropolitan standpoint. There's so many things that are advantageous to be located in Kentucky. Also, the kind of uh, institutional knowledge, if you will. There are so many people that know this industry from a business perspective, from a production perspective, and kind of the, the passing on of that information and knowledge is so critical to this and really gives us a leg up. Kind of the one final piece that really is the impediment is this barrel tax that is seen as very much a throwback to a former heir. And they're trying to find ways to replace that uh, revenue for the county judge executives to use for school buildings and road construction, et cetera. So it's not just a complete removal of the tax. It's kind of a, a reallocation of the tax. Nick, can you tell us a little bit about the history of Kentucky's unique barrel tax? 
Sure. This tax basically dates back to 1888. Uh, Kentucky imposed an ad valorem property tax on a barrel of bourbon. And at that time, a majority of bourbon was owned by non-residents of Kentucky and oftentimes even non-American citizens. The barrel tax was enacted to kind of ensure that Kentucky property taxes were being paid by those non-residents. And as you know, it kind of dates back to a time when the federal government and its revenue officers were incredibly involved in the everyday distillation process. It forced distillers and warehousemen that mostly were almost just more akin to workers at that time that were producing the whiskey that was owned by somebody else it forced them to ensure that the federal government was able to kind of collect those taxes from the owners of the whiskey, no matter where they were actually located. And from what we can tell, Kentucky is the only state in the country and even the only jurisdiction in the world that taxes alcohol in this manner. So if the Kentucky legislature relooks at how we are dealing with the taxation of, of bourbon, I want to be very clear no one is trying to deprive any of the individual counties or localities of that tax revenue. It's just we need to look at how we are taxing this product in order to make sure that it is being done in the most efficient manner uh, for Kentucky and the bourbon companies. It's interesting, and I, this is kind of after the fact when it was created, but the county judge executives have become very accustomed to that taxation model in terms of how the tax revenue is coming into the county and then how they can redistribute that primarily for school buildings and uh, road construction. I mean, Bourbon is building more schools than any other aspect of Kentucky. Not even close. Not, not, not even close. Truly, counties are building schools and fire stations on Bourbon, which is very interesting. I don't think anyone in the industry is trying to take that aspect away. It's just a very unique set of circumstances has led to the taxation model that's currently in place. It truly dates back to who had the keys to the, basically, the, the distilling process, um, and the tax ban had a key. Nick, what can you tell us about the direct-to-consumer opportunities, the DTC opportunities that are now permitted in Kentucky, and a little bit about kind of how we got the legislation in place to address that? I think the sky is the limit as far as direct-to-consumer sales. It, it is a game changer, especially for someone like Peerless or another startup kind of distillery that Cordell was just talking about. Because like a lot of states, Kentucky has a very complicated distribution system when it comes to the regulations involved with alcohol and how it can go from a distillery to a retail sale. And being able to essentially kind of bridge the gap where you can go directly to the source, just as California does with its wineries. It allows us to further our reach without actually having to elaborate the physical footprint of a facility. You can go on Peerless's website and order Peerless today. So long as you're in a reciprocal state and in a location where you're allowed to basically buy alcohol generally, you can have Peerless come to you. It doesn't matter that it's not in your local retail store. We get so much publicity in this state about new bourbons, like new this new product that uh, is hitting the shelf that has won this award. How do you find it? 
peerless doesn't control necessarily the locations where their product gets placed. There is a uh, entire system and an entire industry around how alcohol gets placed in different locations. And that can be very challenging for any type of startup that you are dealing with. Luckily, the legislature found a way to fix that problem. It took a couple couple years. I know in 2018, when this first passed, I thought the spigot was going to suddenly turn on and that we were going to be able to get bourbon shipped you know, every second Tuesday of the month to my door, and I no longer had to run out to a store. And that hasn't developed yet, but I think we are trending in that kind of general direction. Anything that can cut out the obstacles between end consumer and the producer of that product, I think that's great. And Nick does a great job of framing that up. If you think about it, it's really two things that are related. It's about access or availability of product. All of a sudden, you have a democratization or a leveling of the playing field, where all of a sudden, these startup distilleries and startup brands that otherwise would be kind of shut out of distribution or access to distribution, they can kind of punch above their weight, right? They can build one-to-one relationships. They can, what I call, transcend the transaction and not just be a transactional brand, but in fact, build one-to-one relationships with consumers that last for life. Nick, you had mentioned one of the benefits about DTC opportunities is that you can increase your market, you can increase your sales without necessarily having to increase your physical footprint. I know that's an area that you advise a lot of clients in this field about. Can you tell us a little bit about land use planning and zoning issues that distilleries frequently see? Because bourbon is so unique, there are unique land use challenges that come along with it. I was involved in the old Forester zone change that was able to bring back a working, functioning distillery into the city of Louisville in downtown for the first time in a long time. The way that we turn, I guess not turn, but take the next step in the kind of bourbon country evolution is giving tourists the opportunity to come to enjoy this product and to leave money in these communities. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about the direct-to-consumer bills is it allowed for satellite tasting rooms. That shouldn't be controversial, but it was, and it's understandable. But why, in theory, if you were looking at this from kind of a broad picture, if you are producing a product, shouldn't you be able to have a store that sells that product and allows people to sample it? That, in theory, should not be a very controversial thing, but the way that the regulations were, it was. And now, luckily, the legislature has, I think, taken a really a great step forward that, you know, the new convention centers that are being built in Louisville and Lexington, there can be a peerless tasting room where you have thousands of people coming in for a convention that want to be in Kentucky, want to experience all that is Kentucky. And right next door to them, they can walk into a sampling tasting room and be able to experience that. That previously wasn't able to be done because of the ABC regulations and the different kind of zoning laws that were in place that would treat that as if it was a kind of bar, not a sampling of Kentucky's finest product. And there's another interesting aspect of 500 as well that's related to that that's really been a big benefit in terms of exclusive bottles. Well, all of a sudden, that's allowed now, right? That's codified to say that you can say, we can have a product released only in the gift shop. You can only find in Kentucky this one experience. All of a sudden, guess what? That's a tourism draw, right? That's additional revenue. Uh, including tax revenue that's remaining in Kentucky. And it's been a boon uh, for the state as well as our industry. As someone who just went through your all's private barrel selection process, uh, 
how how are you seeing that as far as the demand goes? So the demand definitely outstrips the supply, if you will. <laughs> uh, a great problem to have. So we basically have to be very uh, democratic and very fair to everybody that comes in. We also have to make sure, based on the law and the provision in there, that only 30% of our annual single barrel production is allowed to be sold direct to consumer via the tasting room experience on site there at Peerless, with the remaining 70% being sold to um, the three-tier system. Can you explain that for us? So the three-tier system uh, is the system that was established at the end of Prohibition 1933. Essentially, the federal government was trying to figure out a way to remove corruption from the industry that had pre-existed during Prohibition as well as before Prohibition. And this consists of basically three transactions. So we as a producer or supplier, those terms are interchangeable, uh, making the product essentially at our distillery, sell our product to a wholesaler, also known as a distributor. They then uh, receive a markup on that as well, selling it to accounts. Accounts meaning packaged liquor stores, restaurants, bars, et cetera. Restaurants and bars are considered the on-premise. Uh, packaged liquor stores of all types are considered the off-premise. Uh, from there, they receive a market from selling that product to consumers. The eventual customer for us in this industry is them. But the interesting thing about our industry is it's one of the only industries where you have three distinct customer bases, right? We have to think about our communication strategy in terms of key points of difference with a distributor and what matters to them versus an account versus a customer, the eventual consumer. All three of those are drastically different in what they care about and don't care about which makes a lot of complexities and nuances in this industry exist, which has been fine. Actually, we've done a really good job of detailed management of that. Um, but just to see the interest, right? We have interest not just in Kentucky, but from states that aren't reciprocal states. So in some ways, when I think about it, I think, gosh, well, maybe the interest in terms of single barrel selections could eventually drive those states where those people are located in to have a, a reciprocal state status, if you will, or designation and kind of use that as uh, influence with their state house and senate and governors as well. Is there anything that the Kentucky legislature can do to make it basically be easier to become a reciprocal state, or is that something that's on? Great question. It's kind of a combination of both. I will say that Kentucky's law, specifically 415, which is the original DTC law, is really seen as the gold standard. The KDA, the Kentucky Distillers Association, that is, has done a, f a magnificent job of presenting that to various states that do have interest in being reciprocal with Kentucky. Now, a lot of times it becomes, unfortunately, in those states, less of a priority. So I think it's just continual presentations by the KDA to those states to make sure that they are aware of kind of the immediate impact on the industry. I think it's also what I would call demystifying some of the myths that are out there in terms of the impact that other related industries don't want to see. Uh, and those things have not come true in Kentucky thus far, knock on wood. So I think just kind of making sure that people are reassured that it's a very positive thing. And I know California recently passed it. I believe it's just waiting uh, Governor Newsom's signature. So that would be a significant market just in terms of population. You're talking 40 million people, very affluent. You know, if states like Texas and Florida join them as well, then all of a sudden maybe the floodgates kind of open and there's bigger opportunities out there. I know for our, our listeners in Lexington, Louisville, South, around Naples and Marco Island, yes. they would certainly be very interested in Florida Absolutely. becoming a reciprocal state. Because that system has been in place for so long, it is very difficult for lawmakers to kind of wrap their head around changing it. 
there's been simple things done over the years that have led to tremendous growth that we're seeing in the kind of tourism industry. For a long time, a distillery couldn't sell a drink of their own product on their property. It doesn't make sense, but it was what was determined. That was a, technically a violation of the three-tier system. If you're in one tier, basically, you aren't allowed to have any type of activity in any of the other tiers. It is in order to ensure that there's complete vertical separation between those three distinct kind of aspects of the industry. But it also would prevent someone who owned a distillery from owning a restaurant that had basically a ABC license. While I very much understand the original intent for this system, in today's world, uh, there, there had to be a way that we can better take advantage of the technology that exists today while still keeping in place the protections to kind of prevent any type of corruption. And I think Kentucky's done a lot of great things in the past 10 years. And it triggers a really interesting thought. So one piece of four and five we didn't cover was the visitor center and three-tier transactions. So as of January 1st of this year, 2022, the distributor themselves that represents the distillery outside that building previous to January 1st actually received a margin on every product that was sold through the gift shop at that distillery. So now as of Jan 1 of this year, that has completely gone away. And in fact, all of that margin is kept within the distillery itself. And there's no check cut, if you will, to the distributor that represents that distillery in that state. And how many distributors does a company work with? Well, it depends on the state. So some states, they have franchise laws. So in some states, you're required to basically, once you marry or partner with that distributor, you can never change distributors. Some states like Tennessee, that's the case. But in addition, they have territories. So certain parts of the state, you only have access to a small set of distributors that may not have access to another part of the state. So for example, Nashville distributors may not have access to Memphis or Chattanooga or different parts of the state. So in a state like that, we use three different distributors. So there's not a hard and fast rule. There's another nuance too known as control states or bailment states or 17 in total where the state in some form or fashion controls the sale and distribution of alcohol. In some states, great example, Virginia or Pennsylvania, they own the physical brick and mortar stores. A state like Ohio, they actually issue licenses to private enterprise. So all of a sudden, the state controls it in terms of who they're buying from, how much they're buying. But in terms of who's selling to the customer or consumer in general, individual stores can still exist. So there's an interesting mix of models, if you will. And I think Nick's hit on this a number of times, but a lack of consistency creates a lot of confusion. And I think that's the major issue that's been consistent with this industry. There's been a lot of additional focus on it, which we appreciate, but I think the time has come for us to really have a consistent model or approach to it across the board. And the best part is there's an easy way to do this without impeding on local control um, because nothing that like I'm talking about is trying to take away from a community's decision whether or not to be wet, dry, or moist. It is truly just from a consistency standpoint, it would be wonderful for a statewide kind of edict on this is how we treat one of our signature industries. Cordell, uh, can you tell us a little bit about House Bill 500, which deals with the private barrel selection process and, and kind of an overview of what that means for the distilleries here in Kentucky? Sure. So four major provisions included in there, additional minor provisions as well, but the four major ones that are significant headline grabbers, if you will. Uh, first off, the private barrel selection in particular allows for individuals or groups that are not retailers or don't hold a retail license to 
actually select and then eventually purchase through the gift shop at that distillery an entire barrel of bourbon or rye whiskey or any product from that distillery itself. This is available to be DTC as well. Say you're in Alaska, which is a reciprocal state, and you came to Kentucky. You could select an entire barrel, and you could legally have all the contents of that barrel shipped directly back to you, bypassing an account or the distributor. That is a game changer. Now, a lot of these states that are reciprocal, we are appreciative for. We just don't have the Californias and other significant population centers just yet on board, but that hopefully will come soon. Second major provision was exclusive bottles via the gift shop. The other interesting part of this is it ties back to 415. You can also now have an exclusive bottle sold to reciprocal state via DTC. So all of a sudden, if you can't make the trek or the pilgrimage to Kentucky to visit the distillery, you can have access to that product. So it's, again, amazing game changer for us. Third, the satellite tasting room. Can't overemphasize the importance of that, that Nick did a great job of touching on. This allows, hypothetically, for a distillery in more of a rural area that wants to have more of an urban presence or vice versa. Uh, say it's a Louisville or Lexington distillery that wants to be kind of around a distilling center, Bargetown, Frankfurt, Lawrenceburg area, to have a tasting room. They're allowed one, but you have to have a distilled spirits plant number license in Kentucky to operate that additional tasting room outside of your own at your gift shop. So very important as well. And then fourth is bottle sales at fairs, festivals, and farmers markets, which that's the, the one that people don't talk about often, but also very interesting because if you think about it out in the state, outside of major population centers where you have an emphasis on agricultural products and farmers markets and the like, all of a sudden you can have a product that's produced hours away within Kentucky be sold by the bottle to those consumers. A great real world example of this is for the first time ever, the Kentucky Bourbon Festival of all things can sell bourbon at the bourbon festival, not just sample it. Now, was it House Bill 500 that introduced the vintage spirits aspect of it where it allowed retailers to kind of purchase, you know, sealed historic bottles from individuals? So it was a separate law okay. that was passed prior. Um, this had a provision, I'd have to look up the exact provision in here, that did deal with vintage spirits. And I can find that in just a second, Nick, but that's a really good point as well. But I think it allowed for it to have another outlet. Let's see, here it is. House Bill 500 codifies into statute the current regulations on vintage spirits that limit a consumer to selling 24 packages in any 12-month span and requires licensees to report all purchases to the ABC. Part of this was, from my understanding, is there was some misunderstanding of people that were buying and selling vintage spirits in terms of how they filed the tax paperwork okay. and the ABC paperwork. So I believe that's trying to touch on that. Okay. I found that development just absolutely fascinating. I had never seen kind of historic vintage bottles until kind of recently, and I didn't understand where these were truly coming from. And the fact that there is truly a market out there where people are going around trying to go to estate sales or anything like that and truly purchase up people's historic bourbon collections is just fascinating to me. Well, tasting history, you know, mm -hmm. as we call it. I first experienced it at a very famous bar in Washington, D.C., known as Jack Rose Dining Saloon, owned by Bill Thomas. He became a early uh, interested party in terms of our partnership with Peerless and what we were doing there and hosted us there. And his vintage spirits collection is one of the best in the world. And all of a sudden, he was the one that was helping, among others, push for that passage. Because all of a sudden, you can taste pre-prohibition, prohibition era, post-prohibition, and see the similarity and see the differences and appreciate the nuances of the product.
Cordell, you had mentioned the competition in the bourbon world right now within the United States, and specifically states outside of Kentucky that are taking active measures to grow their own bourbon industries and attract new players. Can you tell us which state in particular are kind of putting on that full court press? Yes. So two in particular are Texas and Tennessee. Obviously, a lot of affluence in both of those states, a lot of other startup industries that have made fortunes in various industries that are able to then have an interest and availability of capital to invest in their own bourbon and or whiskey startup distillery. And you have uh, state legislatures that are very pro-business in terms of the tax code. So it's kind of the perfect marriage of everything coming together, whereas Kentucky has a very established industry in bourbon. It's similarity to the equine or thoroughbred industry in Kentucky, right? Long history, very well established, but maybe the past few years, we haven't had necessarily the most advantageous laws for that industry as well, but that's starting to change. And I think you're starting to see surrounding states see the opportunity to pick some of these off, but also Kentucky's becoming wise to that and going, okay, wait, we're missing out on opportunities to kind of maintain the health of that ecosystem that we touched on earlier. And I'll ask both of you, is there a particular issue that comes to mind when we talk about challenges to Kentucky-based distilleries? Is there something that the legislative body should address quickly to kind of keep that erosion at bay? The barrel tax is the most paramount issue to that because any other state that is actively recruiting these startup distilleries doesn't have it. It's the only place in the entire world where that exists. So, so that's the obvious one. Other things like personal income tax which states like Tennessee, for example, does not have. They have an increase in their sales tax to kind of mitigate that. There's many ways that you can do this without losing tax revenue, but you're empowering the industry to grow as a whole, which I believe the stat I looked at recently from a Paul Coombs study, who's an economist here in Louisville, said that for every one new job created in distilling, three jobs of related status are created. So that's more than automotive manufacturing. That's more than any manufacturing of any type in Kentucky or any industry as far as I'm aware of or what Paul said in that study. So you see the impact. It's the cottage industry that supports the bourbon industry as a whole that benefits as well, not just the industry itself. From my world, I would say I would love to get clarity on a statewide basis of the agricultural nature of aging bourbon. That truly would go a long way to, I think, allowing new opportunities that we currently don't have. I have a lot of horse farm clients that would love their own farm branded bourbon that was aged on property. They have sprawling thousand acres of, of land with barns that aren't being utilized that could be turned into rickhouses overnight. And if suddenly we could be selling bourbon tied in with the horse industry itself, not only does it give those farms an additional kind of revenue source, which is needed in the horse industry world, but it also can help grow both Kentucky signature products. And so I would love to get statewide clarity that the aging of bourbon is agricultural. That is an agricultural product that's sitting in a barn somewhere, just like corn. And I'm glad you mentioned that because we are literally in the midst of that ourselves at Kentucky Peerless Distilling Company. So we currently have 19 acres in Henry County, Kentucky, about 34 miles up I-71 heading towards Cincinnati. And on that property, we've constructed one rickhouse. We have room to build probably four or five additional rickhouses, but we're also looking at more convenient locations around the Louisville metro area to do that. And we are really lacking the clarity when we ask the question of what we can and can't do to make sure we are doing it correctly. And I think if there was consistent enforcement 
of the guidelines or guidelines were established that were very clear, it would make it a lot easier for brands like us. And I've heard very similar feedback from other friends in the industry as well, looking for Rickhouse space, because eventually you have to have a place to store the barrel, right? And that is part of this growth. And we need to kind of embrace the things that come with that, that don't have the negative impacts that are perceived out there. There are many positive impacts that have job creation, economic development that happens with the construction of a Rickhouse. How did Kentucky become synonymous with bourbon? What's the basis for Kentucky's unique history with bourbon? You know, there's a lot of different angles here. It's cultural and it's environmental, I would say. From a cultural standpoint, you had many Scotch-Irish settlers who came through the Cumberland Gap and came into Kentucky to settle the area. Many of them were land grants for service during the American Revolutionary War previous residents of states like Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, that had a bit of distilling culture in their blood, if you will. So used to distilling distilled whiskeys of all types back home in Scotland or Ireland. But when they came to Kentucky, of course, what was plentiful? Well, what was plentiful was maize or corn. So all of a sudden, you get the beginning of that 51%, not quite codified yet, but the beginning of the thought around corn whiskey. So that was a major piece of it. Uh, you had the people with the knowledge, institutional knowledge that I touched on earlier, coming here, but then environmental, right? All of a sudden you have iron-free, mineral-rich water, the perfect water in the world to distill whiskey with of any type is right here in Kentucky. Uh, you have limestone springs, limestone aquifers, limestone creeks. You have one of the best uh, water treatment facilities in the world here with Louisville Water Company that supplies water to most of the distilling in this part of the world. And they've been around since right around the Civil War because there were many um, waterborne illnesses like cholera, et cetera, that broke out here and killed thousands of people. And all of a sudden, Louisville was very uh, forward-thinking to say, gosh, if we bring in the best scientists that we know of to clean up this water and provide, again, iron-free, calcium-rich, and mineral-rich water, all of a sudden we can have other things that happen that are positive, not just clean drinking water. So that was a big piece of it as well. Also, the extremes in climate. Right. A lot of people look at, and I love the state of Texas, it's one of my favorites, but it has a very moderate climate, right? You don't have major swings for the most part in a state like Texas, but in Kentucky, you have significant swings. As we all know, as residents, you can wake up in the morning and it's in the 30s. In the afternoon, it might hit 70 to 75. Well, that's an additional maturation cycle of that product. As it expands, that's due to heat. As it contracts, that's due to cold weather. So the more you have those expansions and contractions, the more rapid aging cycles you have that come about just because of Mother Nature. Uh, even in Scotland and Ireland, again, very moderate climate. Their temperature range is not going to be nearly as wide as it is in Kentucky. Um, so again, it's going to take a lot longer for an older age Scotch to taste like a younger age bourbon, right? A, a five to 10 year old bourbon, for example, may taste as old or older than a 20 plus year old Scotch because of that temperature fluctuation. There are many other aspects to that, even in terms of transportation. Kentucky was a major transportation hub as a state, and not even just Louisville here, but the entire state because of how many tributaries and creeks and other kind of runoff rivers that came through here. If you think about from the population centers at the time, 1700s, to get to the frontier, you had to come through to Kentucky to get there. And at that point, there's ways to store the product, right, which becomes the barrel industry and all these other related industry in terms of transportation, of transporting barrels on flatboats all the way down to New Orleans and every stop in between. And there's a dispute about that. I won't say my opinion. <laughs> Nick probably won't share his either. But where Bourbon's name came, was it Bourbon County? Was it Bourbon Street in New Orleans? We're not going to 
necessarily say that or, or determine that today. We encourage our listeners to do their look own, into the story. Do their do own research. research but yeah. it is fascinating. The uh, connection between New Orleans and uh, Kentucky is certainly uh, long running. It is. And it's interesting. Just a quick history note, too. Here in Louisville, uh, just down the street on River Road from where we're recording this podcast today, uh, New Orleans merchants as early as the late 1700s, 1800s had uh, mansions that were located there. There's literally one facade remaining, but that entire area was only populated by merchants and their families that escaped New Orleans and or had a residence here to kind of facilitate their transportation business in this city between both cities, Louisville and New Orleans. Cordell, Peerless has such a, a fascinating place in Kentucky's bourbon history. Can you tell us a bit about it? I'd love to. Uh, so the founder of Peerless is a gentleman named Henry Craver. He actually was a Polish immigrant who came through New York City. He lived in New York, we think, until he was about 12 or 13 years old. And his primary profession at the time, he was a newsboy. He would sell newspapers. Eventually, he got a wild hair and said, I'm going to jump on a riverboat, and I'm going to go inland into the U.S. at the time, which is pretty adventurous, and, and I'm going to kind of set up shop where I end up. He ended up in Henderson, Kentucky, of all places, found a bar called Puckett's, was the name of the bar at the time, and said, can I sweep the floor and live in the attic? live in the upstairs apartment. And they said, sure. He saved up his money and he bought that bar about three years later. From there, he started a bank, a local community bank in uh, Henderson as well. Eventually became friends with the Worsham family. The Worsham family were very well known for their distilling operation in the area. He purchased it and expanded it rapidly. From the records that we have found, he was roughly probably the fourth or fifth largest distillery at that time in the entire state of Kentucky. And this is all pre-prohibition. So that was 1889 when he purchases Worsham Distillery. He produces, we think, about 2,000 barrels or so a month, which is significant back then. You don't have the technology or the expertise of Vendome Copper and Brassworks. He has local welders and industrial people that are assembling uh, additional expansion equipment to increase his production there. He's producing barrels on site in terms of making the barrels themselves like a Cooperage would today uh, at ISC or Kelvin, for example. He's doing many things. He's basically vertically integrated, if you will, before that was the thing. Unfortunately, World War I comes out, World War I leading into Prohibition, and a lot of people talk about just the Prohibition era, but what happened during World War I was there was grain rationing. So they needed grain to supply bread and other food materials to troops that were going to Europe. He saw this coming, kind of read the tea leaves of Prohibition on the horizon as well, and said, I'm going to go ahead and disassemble my equipment and sell it to a country that can actually still produce legally. So he sold it to United Distillers in Vancouver, British Columbia. But the interesting Vendome connection there is he had the original founder of Vendome, uh, Mr. Sherman. So Rob Sherman, who's currently alive to this day, and uh, the president of that company, his great-grandfather, uh, back in the day and said, come bring your best welders, disassemble this, put it on 17 train cars, and take it on a months-long journey up to Vancouver, reassemble it there, move your families up there, and then come back. So the entire journey back and forth took about eight months. So we enter the Prohibition era. Uh, it's available as medicine, uh, during this time, there's not a lot of options in terms of products out there. It was also the founding of Walgreens at the time, which back then Walgreens could sell distilled spirits during Prohibition as medicine. Many Walgreens, of course, grew up around the area and expand. Mr. Craver does very well. Unfortunately, Prohibition ends in 33, fortunately for the industry. He passes away shortly thereafter. With that, the fortune, his estate, everything is liquidated, including the trademarks. And it's not heard from again until his great-grandson, who 
did not grow up in the industry, but heard these stories said, you know what, I've made my fortune in other industries. I want to come and do the bourbon industry. I'm a Kentuckian at heart, born and raised here. And he did that. And that was the beginning of the genesis of buying the building in Louisville, which was an old tobacco warehouse from the 1800s, two years under construction, first barrel filled in 15. It's kind of an illustrious history, but touches many different eras along the way. Cordell, Nick, thank you again for speaking with us this afternoon uh, about this fascinating topic. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of SKO Unmuted. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us in your favorite podcast app. If you have suggestions for upcoming topics, or if you'd like to share feedback about this episode, you can email us at skounmuted at skofirm.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Adam Back. And remember, persons needing legal advice should contact an attorney to obtain advice with respect to their particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information in this podcast without first seeking legal advice from an attorney in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information presented herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Downloading or listening to this presentation does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the law firm of Stalkeen and Ogden PLLC, any of SKO's attorneys, and any of the presenters in this podcast.